Hey everyone, it's Anushka. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Phoenix. If you haven't already, I highly encourage you to listen to part one because Phoenix shared some really important experiences and thoughts. But without further ado, here is the continued interview. just wondering if like have you ever had any like experiences that has been like challenging living in Seattle and how have you dealt with that yes absolutely um you know you had just said that when you were in Iowa there were there was an instance of like very overt racism right but when you moved to Seattle um you know I really heard you when you said that there are things that that did feel better um, but there's still challenges. And I think Seattle often gets depicted and even touts itself as a very progressive city. Mm-hmm. Um, but my experience within, you know, organizing spaces is that is that we are very much still struggling with whiteness and settler colonialism um, and white standards. And I mean, Seattle, I mean, just alone, we talk, we think about just the capitalism ingrained into the city, into the city Mm -hmm. politics um, and everything. And so when I found myself, you know, working around the women's march, you know, yes, obviously a lot of us know that it's very much um, laden with, you know, the pink hats and white feminism and such, but you know, Seattle had really branded itself as much more as beyond that. And what I found is it, it very much wasn't, Mm. um, that we're often appearing diverse aesthetically, but the rooted ideologies, um, the way that we behave, um, the standards that we uphold are still very problematic. They just look different on the outside. And so, I really think that as an indigenous person, it's like if you want to do like a quality check on your justice movement or your justice work, bring an indigenous person in, right? Because we're kind of like that. I mean, we are the beginning, right? Like this is like we are, uh, as some might say, like it was the original sin, right? And so we have a lot of, um, you know, like policy changes and laws and rights and, you know, equity consulting and, um, you know, racial education and, you know, stuff within even our school education and stuff like that. But if you really do want to do a, a QA check, I mean, really bring an Indigenous person in because then I think that brings a different lens of, of it's that decolonial lens, right? That looking mm-hmm. at settler colonialism and looking at the, the pathways and and the the acts of whiteness, you know, versus um, maybe less so from like an equality standpoint of like, do I do I get the same benefits as a white person? You know, do I get to run along a white person? Do I still, um, am I still entitled to qualifying for a job or having the same leadership position as a white person versus changing those, um, you know, the ways of operating that I think indigenous people bring to the table. 
So yeah. all that to say is that if you're not doing that, you're gonna continue to have things within those systems that are harmful and oppressive to, to any BIPOC person. And I think that's why we find ourselves feeling a level of cognitive dissonance and being told like we're so progressive. We have so many rainbows flags for queer, you know, and Pride Month and all these t-shirts. And we have so many Black Lives Matter signs and in our America signs and yeah. you know, we have policies and our, you know, our nonprofit has just passed, you know, posted the statement. But when your actions don't match that. And your person and somebody's personal experience, everything walking through their day is continuing to experience harm. Like that's when you know, like you, and we have to be able to accept that we are a temperature gauge to what's going on here. And I think that, you know, Seattle really wants people to just subscribe to the narrative and not how we operate together as people. And I know it's very generalizing. I think that there's obviously people in the city doing amazing work, you know, and I can't say that is the case for everybody and everything and everywhere, but I do think that that's a very loud overtone. Mm -hmm. I'm in agreement. And uh, regarding like having indigenous people like come in and just, you know, temperature check as you use that term, um, your, your work, I feel like that is so important because I feel like even just indigenous people's like traditional like you know knowledge and just everything that they have they're so resourceful and in terms of like environment like indigenous people have been taking care of this earth for so long that I feel like in terms of you know climate change is a whole nother thing but like if we can really just take the ideas of giving back to the earth that indigenous people have lived with for so long it would make such a big impact on our like impacts of climate change and prevent global warming and all that. So that's definitely a uh, hope for the future. <laughs> and yeah, I just guess going off of that, how do you think people can engage with indigenous communities more and kind of ask for feedback in that manner? Yeah, um, well, you know, one of the great examples um, that I realized is through some of my consulting work is I had been asked, um, and it was a huge surprise, um, but somebody from the Coast Guard Academy had asked if I would come to the academy and speak to the cadets. And, and so one of the major like points of, of interest and concern there was that when the Coast Guard was operating within um, the Arctic Circle and Alaskan communities is that they were kind of befuddled. Like, you know, what do you mean this is inequitable? Like we're allowing um, feedback to happen from, you know, from tribal folks, like from the villages, however, their feedback was like some some tab on a website where they could type in, you know, feedback. And it's it's that is not that does not create any value for the word of families who have been there for thousands of years. That is not creating consultation and cooperation. I mean, that's that's an, an merely a feedback form. Um, and then there, you know, they were also kind of befuddled, you know, some folks were like, well, you know, we create an open forum where they can come to us and speak to us, but it was in a position where they were, um, you know, they were at a podium and, you know, somebody could in a very kind of like city council way, come up and address them. And it was, a, the dynamic was as, as such where it was, they were the authority. Well, these families also had to travel, um, long distances in inclement weather. And, and I mean, that was just a lot of resources. Um, it was a safety risk. I mean, there was a lot of things that went into that. 
So, you know, changing the terms of consultation is creating a situation where, you know, you're not going, you're not already creating a project and then saying, you know, I'd really love an indigenous person to take a picture with, with us or sign off on this. Um, you know, recently there, I learned of an initiative um, to legalize uh, the use of psilocybins um, and these folks who were non-indigenous basically wanted to use indigenous peoples as a means to substantiate their the work that they wanted to do by utilizing the fact that it's sacred um, cultural use to some of our tribes. Um, and so, you know, that was obviously declined, um, but it's like these situations where the consultation has to be in earnest and it has to be cooperative and it has those people that are they're doing anything and creating anything at this point i tell folks anything that you're doing no matter where you are whatever water you're drinking the air you're breathing the the dirt that you're standing on like that is native land in no way shape or form is anybody an exception to that so long as they're between the atlantic to the pacific in north america and so changing the way of thinking and realizing that incorporating indigenous leadership and consultation and input happens before inception, right? Like these ideas that people have. And, and if not, you know, then figuring out how to reconcile with that, to apologize for harm that has happened and be prepared to, to alter what it is they're doing. And if not alter, quit what they're doing, right? And we look at the pipelines, right? As an example of that, is that, you know, people were at this point, the reconciling with that is to end, you know, that, that particular thing um, versus a situation with my daughter's school, whereas they had, they have a logo there that was created by a white male who did learn from an indigenous artist, but however, they're using cultural appropriation. And in that instance, it's apologizing for the harm, right? And then recreating it by an indigenous artist. Well, what they actually could have done from the beginning is recognize that they're on the, the lands of these indigenous peoples. And that if they have this idea that they could consult with somebody like an artist, but then create a meaningful relationship out of that and say, well, we have a foundation that brings in X amount of dollars. What can we do to also financially contribute to efforts, you know, to indigenous peoples locally to benefit indigenous peoples or efforts. And so, um, you know, anything to do with, with racial equity work, um, it, it's not necessarily, I don't, I don't necessarily seeing it as completely authentic or meaningful work if it is absent of the first people. Um, and in that case, it actually recreates harm. And I think that's very controversial because we have a lot of people doing equity work now and decolonizing work um, and it would pause a lot of people in their tracks and maybe even make folks upset to know that that they also have to think about what they're doing and their clients would have more work to do. So I guess that's a very long, complex answer. I hope it kind of answers the question. Yeah, no, I think you definitely hit on some really important points and especially because unfortunately it kind of adds a complexity, but it's such a crucial part to work. So I feel like people just unfortunately overlook it. But I think it's nice that we're getting a little bit of progress, um, like through land acknowledgement, since I'm pretty passionate about land acknowledgements, actually. And so I just kind of go around and like in my land acknowledgements, like 
I really want to make sure that they're not like check boxes. And so I always try to like talk about the history. Um, and then I say like, you know, like doing land acknowledgements isn't enough. Like we have to actually start conversations and like have those connections. And so I think that that has been a pretty interesting platform to spread awareness about this kind of issues that people overlook. So I guess that kind of just proves that, you know, even as something as saying a statement can make that kind of impact, you know, if you actually do the work, I think we can get places. Yeah, that's perfect. And that's amazing that you do that. And I really appreciate. And if I were to be consulting with somebody on a land acknowledgement, as I've done before, is that that part that you had talked about is, is the act of it, right? The relationship building of it is the most crucial part. It's the follow-up, right? Because oftentimes, you know, people will try to check the box and, and it, it communicates, I like to say like a certain level of wokeness that gives people social credit. Um, but the folks who are doing the real work and that really have their heart in it and are trying to make lasting impact are folks such as yourself who think about what happens after that. Mm -hmm. So appreciations for that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was also just a couple more questions and then obviously I wouldn't be respectful of your time. I was just curious as to, from your perspective, what you what do you think that people can do to take action, especially regarding issues that, you know, you need Native consulting on, you would, you know, prefer to get that Indigenous perspective. How can people take action from your thing? Yeah, what a great question. I think that we're at a beautiful point in time right now where there are actually, there's an abundance of areas where people can get involved. And I think that the first step is wherever you are, um, whatever state you're in, whatever territory you're in, is to just kind of try to tune into what's happening there, right? And so, because um, it's going to differ between Minnesota to Alaska or Canada, um, and so there's, there are climate initiatives, obviously, um, but then there's also certain like law and policy, like recently, um, like here in, um, in Washington, um, we passed a bill that was, um, you know, not in support of racist mascots. And so legislatively, depending on, you know, I mean, you can always sign a petition, you can also get involved um, if that's your stream of work. But then also, you know, there are a number of nonprofits like locally, right? And so you can look up like who is there and who's doing work because there's always a need for volunteers. There's always a need um, to continue to partner with these programs around resources. But then, you know, these nonprofits are working off of grants. So having economic access, if somebody has privilege of money or access to money doing those things, um, but then also, you know, in, in thinking of like how, you know, resources um, are needed is that I'm realizing like through social media that there are a ton of people that are now voicing their needs on larger platforms through GoFundMe and sharing their cash handles for people who, who need cars um, that don't have a quality vehicle, independent vehicle, so they can go to work or um, serve their community or elders in their community, um, people that have medical expenses that aren't getting covered. Um, and so there was a hashtag called um, Settler Saturday, but it got co-opted and shut down by Twitter as well. And so I think it's, um, I think there's hashtag indigenous tip jar. So those are things on personal levels that people can engage with. 
Um, but then also, you know, we think about traditional streams of, um, you know, advocacy and protest, you know, those things are there, but recently um, with um, the survivals, uh, survivors of like residential school and assimilation camps is, you know, there are organizations that are trying to work on the healing for those families. Um, and, you know, being able to, to contribute there and explore those avenues, um, using your your place to educate the people around you. Um, you know, like you had said, when when we're doing social justice work, like incorporating indigenous perspective, like makes it more complex. And I think that as a country, we've been able to settle back in that kind of, I'll get to it later, or I don't have to think about it because it's easier. Um, so all that to say that, mm-hmm. um, that I think that there's abundance of, of different ways that people can get involved. And the best thing that someone can do is research those things and see what, what calls to them. And not necessarily what seems easier is because everybody's so different, right? And they're going to engage in different ways, but just make sure that when, when you're doing it is that you're doing it from a good place, not because you have good intentions, but because, because you realize that you're giving something up, that you're not gaining something out of it, that it is not conditional, that it will be sustainable, something that you commit to for the rest of your life. Um, And that you're going to be open to, I guess, to, to changes in your thinking, but also changes in your behavior. Because once you come into these spaces, even if it's momentarily, the way that somebody can show up and just say hello can oftentimes be perceived as disrespectful because of the different cultural um, forms of like communication and, and such. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you for that. And um, I hope that, you know, more people will start to realize that they also have the power to make a difference because there's so many just, there's so much action that needs to be done. We just really need everyone on board. So. Right. Yes. Well, also, I was thinking I don't want to leave out um, Indigenous business, right? And Indigenous professionals, right? So continuing to create avenues like supporting Indigenous business. And and I know it's difficult because some people are like, well, can I wear this? And there are things that you can wear and things that you can use, but you can also highlight their business, right? And help um, people establish their business. Um, and, you know, job security is, is one thing as well, just on individual levels, making sure that people are protected in their workplace, um, mm-hmm. but there's no bystander effect. Going. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's much. actually something I kind of questioned because I went to like the Duwamish Longhouse and I saw these like really beautiful earrings and I, I'm obsessed with earrings. If you, That's something you would want to know about me if you want to know. <laughs> I love earrings. Um, and I bought them and I was like, well, is it? cultural appropriation if I wear this like is it okay <laughs> oh so did you talk to anybody no I I mean I uh, the ladies who I bought it from were indigenous yeah so we definitely share that I have I I don't even I lost count of how many earrings I have I feel like yeah. sometimes I feel like I personally sustain small indigenous businesses like through their <laughs> over the pandemic I was just like every time I like got money or whatever I was just like I'll just buy more earrings I'll just buy more t-shirts yeah Um, but yes. And so, yeah, I think, um, uh, so there are actually some really great infographics going around, like, um, indigenous, like Instagram accounts that will like literally like go through, like, can I wear this? Is this cultural appropriation? And that's why I say like, people should be following these accounts because oftentimes people just belittle it and compartmentalize it into like, oh, that's a native thing. It's like, no, but like you can, there's so much cross-cultural sharing and education that happens and those specific questions like are addressed. And so I love the way that the other folks have described it, but in short, 
like in short, like, no, if you're buying a pair of earrings, like from a place that is selling them for, for, and it's not ceremonial use and it's not specific cultural use, and it doesn't have a spiritual cultural, like necessarily like, significance, right. Then wearing like wearable art is, is a bit different. And I, I have seen where there have been people who wore things that were specific um, to ceremony and cultural protocol or had specific um, symbolism to maybe somebody's, somebody's family line or um, it was symbolism of specific stature in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when we get into areas where it would be inappropriate. But right. if you see some beautiful earrings, you know, on some Instagram account, they look good, like buy them, support that artist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're actually, um, they're like really pretty like dream catchers. <laughs> so I I love pink anyways. Like I literally have everything in my house is pink. <laughs> So. Yes. And so long as you, as long as the dream catchers are from an indigenous nation who, you know, makes dream catchers and it's not a non-native person who makes dream catchers. Cause I feel like that was a big thing over the last few years is like finally kind of taking the lid off of like so many people who are culturally appropriating as like white women mm-hmm. and like who are making dream catchers or even you go into forever 21. Right. And there was a period of time where kind of like this hippie look was big. And so it was, you know, very much like Western slash hippie slash blending Native American things into mm-hmm. fashion. And so that's when I feel super uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. So like, would it be wrong if someone had a shirt that had a dream catcher on it, but it was like not made by a Native person? Yeah, I would definitely say that that's, that's kind of like the uncomfy zone, right? Yeah. So if it was like, if it was a shirt from Forever 21 that was like mass produced by you know, basically that type of a company and such, um, I would definitely discourage you not doing those things because, and, you know, and there are indigenous companies um, where people are making wearable fashion that have that incorporated, you know, into their clothing. They're from that nation that, you know, actually were uh, dream catchers originated from. And so that's, that is something that I think is what is in the more comfy zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also like people put up dream catchers in their homes, but as long as they're buying it from an indigenous person, that's fine then. Right. Kind of. And I think that, yeah, even that's um like a weird, I feel like I'm a little bit inconclusive on that. And I think that, especially as somebody who doesn't like my nation, um, like dream catchers are not within our realm. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely defer to somebody else answering this, like as an authority, um, but I also know that like we've gone to a powwow and there were folks who made dream catchers. So my daughter had, and my daughter loves pink. And so she has a pink yes. dream catcher that she had for like eight years. But yeah. So I don't necessarily want to answer too much um, as a coastal native person. Mm-hmm. I got that. But yeah. Don't go around wearing like a button blanket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that. Yeah. All right. Well, I just want to end with one question. I know you mentioned about like missing and murdered Indigenous women and kind of just like, you know, your work there, your experiences there. So do you maybe you just want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, I think um, I think that that I guess I would like to talk about that. And I would love to to dignify that topic with more time. And so maybe we can highlight that specifically in a follow up conversation that we have, because um, sure. I feel like there is a lot of really meaningful work that's happening. Um, A lot of people grieving 
you know, families um, such as mine who have, you know, those who have gone missing or murdered. And then, you know, even myself, my personal experience with MMIW is I, I am a survivor. And, um, and this is, is something that's, it's under-resourced, um, it's under-publicized, it's, it's undervalued in mainstream America, which is really, really unfortunate. And I would really like to see that change happen. And, and people are going to have to confront something within themselves, right? And I, I don't think that, you know, there's a hashtag um, not invisible, but sometimes I think that we are very visible. It's just so accepted. It's mm-hmm. just so expected. And, um, and I think that that's a, that's a very, very big injustice. And that, you know, um, uh, Jenna from Rutherford Falls, one of the new um, TV series. Have you heard of it? Nope. <laughs> um, it's, it's great. So this is my plug um, for Rutherford Falls. It's also really funny. Um, but, you know, I, I read something on her Instagram page the other day that was very much like something that I had um, been talking about a little bit more over this last year was like normalize wellness and abundance and happiness for indigenous women. Right. Cause that's something that's not right. It's just like, and for me, some in the, yes, I think in kind of colonial terms too, right. Like wealth and vacations and happiness and like even material items, but also just safety and being fed. Right. Like, um, and all of that. And so I think that those two kind of go, go hand in hand with, you know, the violence against us, maybe not being invisible, but so expected, but our lack of wellness being such an expectation and such a low threshold for us as well. So when we start normalizing indigenous women being healthy, happy, content, fed, and and nourished and having it and not just having basic like, oh, well, you ate once today, right? No, having an abundance, right? And being able to have extra you know, and like that needs to be normalized. It's okay that we are living our best lives. It's okay that we are, you know, that we have enough or even more than enough. And, you know, also that we are in positions of leadership and not fighting to keep it every single day that we are rightfully expected and supported when we're there as well. Yeah, I think we should definitely do some episode about that because I know you probably could go really in depth and I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. So we can definitely talk about that. Um, But I don't know if this is correct, but I think someone or Will told me that you were really good at humor and comedy. So do you maybe want to add? He said I was funny. (laughs) We would love to be treated to some stand-up comedy or whatever you would like. Not to put me on the spot or anything. Oh my gosh, I do have, so it's embarrassing, but yes, in sixth grade, I was literally, you know, at the end of the year where you vote somebody like best fashion or best smile, Uh you know, all that. And it was such a shock to me. And I like read the announcement thinking I was going to read about everybody else, not me. And I was like, and then it was like, class clown. (laughs) Wow, that is. Quite yeah. the honor. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I kind of wish that there was like a certificate or a trophy I could have brought home, and maybe I'll just make my own. Maybe that'd be like my own gag gift to myself, and just probably display that and like a picture of me from sixth grade, because you know it's good. You know it's so good. Like mm-hmm. the pictures. <laughs> we love sixth grade photos. No. <laughs> yes. Right. Oh my gosh. So yeah. Um. I feel like 
humor is a part of my family. Um, in in Klingit culture, we have um, we have a certain societal structure, and so our moiety is like you're either born as a raven or an eagle, and below that, your family is described um, and and identified as as um, several different like classes and such. Um, but ravens are notorious for being tricksters. And, and there's just so many stories that go along with that. And they're often very times like funny and inappropriate and obnoxious even. And I'm like, I'm all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I enjoyed, you know, that's one thing I remember from my military days is like just um, always having friends together and just loving. And that's a part of me that I feel like I lost over time. And well, maybe not lost, but just set aside is my ability to just like let loose and have fun. And I was always a jokester and like, mm-hmm. you know, I was just anchor man came out however many years ago. And there was like this line. And when he would, when he showed up, when Will Ferrell showed up to the party and he was like, Hey, everybody come see how good I look. <laughs> That's how people knew I was there. And yeah. So I have a couple of friends that had have done stand up, and, um, and they have told me a couple of times that I should do it. And I was like, you guys, it would basically just be me standing on stage awkward making fun of myself and they're like yeah that's hilarious <laughs> <laughs> not to put you on the spot but do you have anything to as a joke right now or oh my gosh that well I mean that was my long joke <laughs> <laughs> okay I'll take it but we need a, a full a full version sometime yeah I'll have to I'll prep some skits maybe I don't know we'll see that'll be fun I'll just like I'll just do like a I'll just walk in one night and do like, you know, cause I do open mic stand up and I'll just give it a shot and I'll have some re-recorded and could just replay a clip of me being like painfully embarrassed. <laughs> I will. I'm looking forward to posting that. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like my hopes and dreams to be made into like an embarrassing gift one day that everybody plays and makes memes off of like, you'll be famous. So <laughs> I mean, famous. We are famous, but <laughs> Awesome. All right. Is there anything else you think you would want to cover? Oh my gosh. No, we've done uh, so much today. And I just yeah. want to share like my ultimate appreciations and respect and admiration for you. Like you're such a wonderful human. And so thanks for, I mean, thanks for the invitation. Um, thanks for all of your really meaningful questions and thought exploration. I'm just astounded and um, in complete gratitude. Thank you so much. That means a lot. And I mean all of that back to you. It's it's just oh, such a pleasure, you know, being able to interview you and learn from your experiences. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Absolutely. All right, well, have a great day. You too. Bye. Take care. <laughs>